All right. Good morning, everybody. Um, when I wrote in the email that I was going to be talking about the topic I was going to be talking on, I thought maybe 10 people would show up. <laughs> so I feel a little bit more pressure. I'm glad I put on my 48-hour deodorant today. Um, a couple weeks ago, uh, we had written on cards, what are some of the things that we're struggling with, dealing with? And one of the trends that I saw uh, in these cards as I was reflecting upon them, I've already spoken on a bunch of them. Last week, I talked a little bit about relationships, and specifically relationships that we uh, struggle with, right? Like people that we care about, that are in our life, but we struggle with them. And, and how do we see some form of reconciliation and communication and that kind of thing? Um, but this week, uh, as I was looking at the cards, what I noticed is that there are several of us that are really struggling through uh, what to do with people that have really hurt us. And more specifically, um, what to do um, with the trauma that that causes. Because realistically speaking, um, when people really hurt us, that impa impacts us in multiple different ways. And it stands within reason that it's not just going to impact us relationally, but it's also going to impact how we view God. And so I really wanted to wrestle with that this morning. Now, when I started with this, I thought, man, I don't even know if I'm going to have en enough. Um, I was talking to Ron, for example, this morning. I don't think I've, I've been uh, uh, an intentional follower of Jesus for the last 18 years, and I don't think I've ever heard a sermon uh, from somebody that talks about the sins of other people and their impact on us. Generally speaking, it's always our sin and how that impacts us or other people. And so I was like, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> like, what, where, where do I start? And so something that began like a seed has now grown into something that's two weeks uh, because I don't think that I could do this well in one week. I don't even know if I'm going <laughs> to do it well. Um, <laughs> But I definitely can't do it well in a week. Um, and so this week, because in recognition that I, I know that if I haven't and Ron was affirming with me, he's never heard a sermon on the same topic, chances are there's many of us that have never heard a sermon on the impact of sin on us. And so I need to do some theological work. I need to do some theological undergirding, and then I'll build from that. So this week, uh, hopefully it will be... Um, redemptive and encouraging to all of us, but I can't really get to Jesus if I don't really talk about some of the stuff beforehand, okay? Um, so in saying that, uh, I want to also give some disclaimers. I recognize that this is not going to be a complete story, um, so this is going to require work on your behalf, if you want to. Um, how many of us like to look at trauma in our lives? You want to write <laughs> That's like, that's your fun thing to do. Only the psychologists in the room, probably. Um, we don't like to look at trauma. We don't like to look at hurt. We don't like to look at pain. We like to push that under the rug. And especially the really deep stuff, the stuff that, you know, we're like, how did we even get through that when we're 20 years down the road? Like, how, how did I survive that? Um, I, I just want to point out that there, I want to hit that nerve center this morning. I want this to fester like a wound because I strongly believe that this, this trauma that we carry, the hurt, the pain that we carry does deeply impact our relationship with God. Furthermore, it impacts our relationship with other people. 
So I'm not going to be, I got an email this week that says, don't be gentle. I'll be gentle. Um, but I want to hit that nerve center. I want you to grapple with this. I want you to look at these things realistically and honestly because it does impact you. And I can speak personally. I still, there's things in my life that as I relate to God, I struggle with because of the way that people have treated me. And I know I'm not the only one. For example, many of us carry father wounds. So when we read scripture where it says God as a loving father, we're like, "Mm, I don't know about that. That's just one example. If you've been abused, that's another example. How can you see God as a God of protection if you've been abused? Whether it be emotionally, physically, physically, sexually, any of those things. I recognize that this is difficult topics, but you are not alone in this. So I keep on swinging around these books. Um, I have four different books that I think are unbelievable resources uh, as a starting place. I will recommend, again, as a disclaimer, if you've experienced trauma in your life, you've experienced the effect of sin of other people in your life, I can definitely recommend therapists to go to. I don't think, I'm not the type of person that's like, oh, well, if you just pray and read your Bible, you're good to go. (laughs) Like, I need a therapist. I have a therapist. I'll put that right out there for you. Um, I need somebody that can walk me through the pain and trauma in my life. And so I can definitely suggest people for you. But these four books, uh, one of them, I'm going to put them back there. I'm going to hand them right back there so you can look at it. One of the ones is called No Place for Abuse, um, and it talks about domestic violence. Another one is Soul Repair, and this is Rebuilding Your Spiritual Life. So this one really focuses um, if you've experienced trauma or if you've experienced hurt, what does it look like basically to start from scratch in your walk with God? Um, This one is Healing the Scars of Emotional Abuse. So what I found in my personal life, but then in studying um, and also just as a pastor, most people deal with emotional abuse. Um, And this is a really great book regarding emotional abuse. And the final one, which I wish I could buy a copy for all of you, is Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. This one... Uh, covers a lot of different things, but one of the chapters that I really appreciate uh, in this book is it talks about the generational impact on our lives. So how do our parents impact us? How do our grandparents impact us? That sort of thing. Uh, There's more in here, and it talks to you about how to work through that, but these are four resources, and there's so many more that are available to you. I'm just going to put these back here so you can look at them. Um, So having given some disclaimers uh, I don't have a question for you up here, um, but I do have a question for you. Uh, how would you define, you know, we read Genesis 1 and we, we read Genesis 4, different portions. How would you define when it says made in God's image, how would you define that? What is God's image? I want you to think about that and then talk to each other. What do you think God's image is? Let's wrestle with that a little bit. What is God's image? And if you need that resource, it's uh, Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. So what, is, what does it say in our image? Go ahead and talk. Really important question. Do you think that you're made in God's image? 
that your image, your image bearers. <laughs> Capability of it. What if I told you that there's nothing that you could say or do that changes the fact that you're God's image bearer? Like, that's a foundational truth. You are made in God's image. I'm going to say something. The most difficult people that you can think of. Who's, like, the worst person you can think of? I think of Hitler. <laughs> that's where I have my mind goes. Okay. Hopefully not somebody in your family. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not somebody in your family. Who, who, who did you say? OJ. OJ? Man. He didn't do it, though. Um, what else? Anybody else? See, the thing is, is that just because somebody is really, really bad doesn't change the fact that they're made in God's image. So there's something about God's image that, that is outside of what we do and what we say, but just implicitly who we are. And we see that with God. I'll explain it this way. First, there's a, um, there's a theologian called Millard Erickson. There's three different ways that he describes uh, being made in God's image. One is called substantive. Um, and so that's, that deals with the psychology and morality, like the behavior. Um, another one is relational. So that's the internal communion. So made in God's image is like this internal communication that we have in God, this dialogue that we have. And then uh, functional is dominion. And dominion comes from actually this first, uh, first chapter of Genesis where it says, Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion. Right? So dominion meaning like co-ruling, co-regents. Is that to be made in God's image is that we're reflecting God's dominion to the world. Um, I think that there's a case that could be made for all three. I think that being made in God's image is like there's uh, one of the best ways I've heard it described is it's like we have God's fingerprint on us. So while we're unique, we're still marked. Um, and through that, there is a sense of morality. There's a sense of psychology. Um, there's a sense of internal communion and communication with God. But I also think that something that is often neglected in our image buried is co-regency or dominion. Um, N.T. Wright, who is one of my favorite theologians, he describes it this way, um, as he says that we're like a mirror. And so if you can imagine that God is king of all things, and we as mirrors are reflecting to creation his regency. So he is king, and we get to, and every single thing that we do, reflect that. But mirrors don't go one direction, do they? Like, have you ever gone in a fun house and you open up the one thing and you can see a copy of yourself like a thousand people long? Right? Like, it, it reflects back. And so one of the cool nuances of N.T. Wright was talking about is part of our co-regency, our image-bearing, isn't just what we reflect to one another, but also what's reflect back to God. So how we are in dominion, how we are regents with God, how we create with God is worship back to God. So in, it, uh, in the picture that I had, uh, and you don't have to put that back up, Tom, um, this is just about Genesis and, and image, is this idea of fragmented glass, is that sometimes we're really clear bearers of God's image, and then other times, not so much. Um, and then when we start looking at relationships, and this is what I really want to talk about, is first, 
What I'm talking about today doesn't absolve us, so the pain and trauma that somebody else has inflicted upon you doesn't absolve you from your own decisions. Is that fair? Like, your sin is your sin. In saying that, though, I think it's important to understand how some of our decision-making and our behavior, our psyche, our image-bearing is impacted by the decisions of other people. Doesn't absolve you from your decision or your sin. Because remember, how I'm going to define sin is ultimately running away from God, not choosing not to bear image. Like, we all have those moments where we're like, I don't know if I should do that. And then we do it, <laughs> right? Inevitably, we do it. Sin, okay? Somebody else didn't make you do that. You made the decision to do that. But there is many instances in our life also that other people have sinned that have caused us to be in difficult situations that we're trying to make the best of. And I want to explore what those look like. So with image bearing, uh, if we can, again, just hold in our minds this mirror picture. So we're reflecting God's kingdom to the world, but we're also in worship reflecting his creation back to him. Are we all on the same page with that? That's really important theological foundation. Everything else doesn't make sense from that point. It doesn't make sense. Okay, so I have an, uh, an image to help us understand image a little bit and relationship. So, you, Tom, go ahead and put that up. Okay, so uh, there's some social science that talks about social spaces, um, and I'm just kind of pulling from that a little bit. Um, but let's say that this is you in the middle, right? And that blue dot represents your intimacy and divine relationship with God. I didn't know how to do that in a slide, right? Like, how do you really incorporate in an image God's divine relationship with you and intimacy? So that blue dot is what that is. This green circle is those intimate relationships that you have, the people closest to you. It's often referred to as a naked space. The next one is, I'm going to say family and friends. So that circle where they're not, they don't see your everyday sort of person, your ups and downs, your goods, your bads, right? But you're close to them. Close friends, close, close family, but not those, those really intimate relationships. And then you have acquaintances. Um, when we start looking at our, um, our workplaces or our neighborhood and stuff like that, um, some people generally fall into the family and friends. But I think we define friends really weirdly. Like how many of you have like a bunch of really, really close friends? Probably, well, Brett, of course. My constant outlier. They're all, yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, I would say that most of our relationships probably fall under the definition of acquaintances. Um, so primarily the space, relational space that we operate in is acquaintances. But, but interestingly enough, that has the least sort of impact usually on our trauma. It's usually these people that we're closest to that impact us the most. And maybe here. Now, you see I have these little clip art buildings. Um, those represent powers and principalities that are talked about in the New Testament. So structures. Um, we are not just impacted by individual relationship, family and friend relationship, acquaintance. acquaintances. Um, we're also impacted by commerce. We're impacted by government. We're impacted by business. We're impacted by manufacturing. We're impacted by farm. I mean, if you look at Genesis 1, what does it say? It's dominion over all things. So we're impacted not just by relationships, but how people 
interact in these spaces and whether it's healthy or unhealthy. Um, now, in an ideal Genesis 1 picture, go ahead and click the other side, Tom. This is what it looks like, right? Is that because of this divine movement of intimacy with God and with other people, we're mirroring, realistically, these arrows could be pointed back and forth. That's what it means to be a perfect image bearer. Is that we're in our intimate relationships, our family and friends, our acquaintances, even the places outside of that, just the places that we operate in, it's done in perfect healthiness. There is no fighting. Can you imagine, like, no fighting? Can you imagine nobody arguing for a promotion? <laughs> Can you imagine kids that listen? <laughs> That's why I have therapy, I guess. Um, but, but all of these relationships are in perfection. Not imperfection, imperfect. In perfection. Perfect mirrors of relationship, back and forth. Now, um, just to add to that, what we have to understand is, is that, we'll do one more slide, Tom, is that that's not always the case. And we can see that because of Genesis 3, which I didn't cover. But what happens is, is that people don't live perfectly. They sin against God and other people. And so these intimate people, they hurt us. Sometimes our family and friends, they hurt us. Thanksgiving, Christmas, we'll hear all about that, I'm sure. Acquaintances hurt us. Sometimes, like, a perfect example of how acquaintances hurt us is gossip. They don't really know you. Man, social media, shoop, right here. <laughs> News, all that kind of stuff. All of that right there. But then undergirding, I couldn't figure out how to display this in an image, is that undergirding all of our relational structure is just structures, powers and principalities. So all of these relationships that we operate in fit within structures. So for example, if let's say government, just as an example, I'm not making any political statements. <laughs> I'm not going there. Uh, maybe I should choose something else. <laughs> I'm going to start there. So if, if government is broken, for example, that's a structure that we all live in, right? So um, there's been throughout history broken government structures. A perfect example, I have a close uh, member in my cohort, and he's a missionary in Bolivia. Um, we don't know much about Bolivia right now, but Bolivia is f currently falling apart. There is massive protest. Chile is another place. Peru is another place. South America is... Specific, yeah. Ecuador is another example. Right now, South America is on fire. <laughs> Broken government structures. And it's not just like empty entities. There's people and relationships that are in that. So for example, how many of you are just a jerk when you're hungry? This guy right here, <laughs> right? Can you imagine not having food for like weeks? I mean, just sustained food. You're constantly hungry. I mean, how does that impact you, let alone your relationships? So you see what I mean is that these things kind of undergird all of our relationships and impact us. So for example, if powers and principalities sin against people, that will impact us. In our own American history, racism is the perfect example of that. 
racism, racist policies created structures that created severe issues in our society and humanity. I'm looking at your faces, you're like, oh gosh. <laughs> but, but that's a structural reality, and those are overarching themes that we deal with as a society. I want to get more personal for a minute. Notice, what do you notice about the arrows? I know this is a weird question. Huh? They're all coming at us. Go ahead. Right. This is really something that I was reflecting on just as a, as a personal. Um, I think, uh, and I know, okay, if there's any uh, people that are really good at physics, my physics are probably wrong. We're going to call these relational physics. I find that the people that are closer to me, the less the distance travels, the harder it hurts. Right? Like, um, I'll give you an example, and I know that Titus wouldn't be bothered. One of the things that he learned at preschool was, you're not my daddy anymore. <laughs> Who is your friend? I need to talk to their parents, right? <laughs> I mean, how does a three-year-old have that much of an impact on me? That hurts. I mean, he's tiny. And in one sentence, as we're going to sleep, which is my favorite, when I tell him to go to sleep, you're not my daddy anymore. Cool. Okay. Uh, family and friends, they definitely hurt us, but because they're not in our everyday lives, I don't feel like the impact is that strong. It can be, though, because at one point, generally, those fam fam family and friends were a part of our intimate space. An example of that. We were all children at one point. So these people that we're arguing with, whether it's aunts and uncles, brothers and sisters, moms and dads, right? They were once part of our intimate space, and that's oftentimes, if you look at where the trauma occurs in our life, where sin really impacts us, is in those intimate spaces. Acquaintances, I still think, I mean, social media has kind of made this really weird, but gossip, um, what people say about us, those kind of things, a hearsay, that can really impact us as well. And like I said, these structures. And notice, this is the opposite of healthiness. Like, consider what's being, so we sin. Everybody here sins. So that's what we're reflecting out to the world. But then when people sin against us, when creation, when you guys sin against me and I sin against you, what's being reflected back to God? sin and brokenness. The redemptive aspect of this is certainly Jesus. Um, I want to, I forgot one other side I think is really important. Um, go ahead, Tom, before I go, go there, because I do think that this is, this is just kind of a weird sort of thing that I think does impact us, so it's generations. Um, for ex a perfect example of that is that if there is addictive behavior in your family. That impacts generations. Does Jesus break those chains? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I don't, I, it's not my story to tell of my own family, but I can say I'm a living example of Jesus breaking those chains of addictions just in my lifetime. But that doesn't mean that there's not generational impact that's happened. And if you look at 
the way that family is structured, especially. Gen there is generational impact. And then you start thinking that our great-great-great-great-great-grandparents were a part of building these structures. They're a part of the... I mean, it's like overwhelming, right? I feel like it's a tsunami of sin that we just get splashed on us all the time. And I'm here to say that it's the worst. It's the worst. Um, I wanted to use Genesis 4 as an example of this because, I, want, I mean, this is the first time that we're seeing an unhealthy picture of image bearing, and it played out. And I just want to point out some things um, in it, just as, again, merely the impact of sin, what it does. I want you to pay particular attention to the author mentions the countenance of people, and it mentions their physical appearance, not just their relational appearance. But keep that in mind as you talk about image bearing, as we talk about image bearing. So I'm going to read it again, just so you can hear it. Now, the man knew his wife Eve, um, and the, other, the translation for that is intimately. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. I'm going to pause there. Um, if you look down, if you're looking at this Bible here, if you go down, you'll see there's a little letter D next to the word produced. And that says, resembles the word for Cain. So the word produced in Hebrew is also, this, it sounds very similar to the word for Cain. I think actually a, a little bit more of an accurate translation says created rather than produced. So the Hebrew word sounds more like created. So I'll read it for you again. It says, I have created a man with the help of the Lord. Doesn't that sound like Genesis 1? Like Eve is actually living into this mandate of dominion, of image bearing, of flourishing. Now, granted, having children isn't the only way that we are called to create. This is just one way. Verse 2, next she bore his brother Abel, so she created again with God. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground, following Genesis 1 perfectly. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel, for his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock their fat portions. Now, Part of the reason why I want to go about what I'm saying in this particular way is um, I want you all to be able to read Scripture for yourselves and notice the nuances. What do you notice that as a difference between Cain's offering and Abel's offering? What stands out to you? Okay. Yeah, go ahead. I'm going to use Halloween candy as an example. Um, as a child, our goal when we get our Halloween candy is to get the best <laughs> and leave the rest for other people. And the parents' goal is the very same thing. Let me get out the best of what I like. And if you look at your friendships and relationships, if we go back to that circle, those intimate people, even if they're the closest people to us, we're still like, I don't know, I kind of would prefer that for me. Right? 
We like to give the leftovers a lot of times. That's not as an accusation. That's just reality. And realistically, we could all identify with Cain at points in our lives. We're like, oh, yeah, okay, uh, so you want some fruit? Um, okay, there's a spoiled apple here. I've got some busted up papaya over here. Here you go, God. Or maybe it's not even that. Maybe it's like the second portion of his crop. Like he wasn't even mindful of let me just, man, God, you gave me this. Now remember, the law isn't instituted yet. So this is just generally speaking what flows from the interior relationship between Cain and Abel and God. They have the same parents, right? So the story continues. The, and that's when you ask about why it was rejected is we can start to see that there's a different heart between Cain and Abel. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Notice what Cain does. So Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. How many of you have ever been angry before? <laughs> have you ever looked at the, in the mirror when you're angry? It's scary. You've done it before. I challenge you, when you're angry, like maybe not in front of a person because that would be weird, but the next time you feel angry, like just angry, go look in the mirror. And one of the things you'll notice is your face. <laughs> and it doesn't look happy, obviously, but it's kind of messed up. You all are beautiful people. I'm not critiquing you. Um, isn't that part of our image? I'm not talking about the, the face that we hold, the mask that we wear. I'm talking about image bearing before God. Notice that the author is talking about the image that's being reflected from inside out. He was angry and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, notice what, he's asking about his image. Why are you angry? What's going on inside? And why has your countenance fallen? Why is your image reflecting that? Like, hey, buddy, don't you know that you didn't give me your first fruits? If you do, so notice what he says. So notice Jesus, or well, God is pointing out that when there's something off about your image, there's something that happens. What does verse 7 say? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you bear your image well, will you not be accepted? And if you do, do not, if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. So if you're not mindful of your image, not how people view you, I'm not talking about that, how you're created to be as an image bearer of God, what will happen? Sin is lurking to break that image. Fast forward, Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go out to the field. Super innocent, right? And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. That's another way of saying that Cain destroyed the image of Abel, the very image of God in Abel. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Where is my image bearer? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for his image? And the Lord said, what have you done? 
Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to it, yield to you its strength. Pause for a moment. What is what does he do for a living? He farms. He tills the ground. Isn't that in part of his image bearing? And now his image bearing is cursed. And, the, and what, what, why is he tilling the ground? For what? For food, for produce. Now that impacts all the people in his life because of his decision. Because he chose not to bury the image of God well. So it doesn't just impact him. It impacts all the other people that are going to be in his relational circles. It's going to impact all the structures that he's a part of. It's a seismic effect, right? You will be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. So even his dominion, even what he's going to live his life like is going to be messed up. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. <laughs> I can't bear this image anymore. Today you've driven me away from the soil and I shall be hidden from your face. I can't see your image, God, anymore. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and anyone who meets me may kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. So you see his sin impacts the other people. And in some ways, it would seem righteous to kill Cain, right? Like he carries the curse. But he says, no, 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 I want you to be an example. And how do we know that? And the Lord put a mark on Cain. God marked Cain. God changed his very image. So that no one who came upon him would kill him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. He went away from the very one that he's bearing the image of. And he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And then if you were to go down, it says beginnings of civilization. And what happens? Cain knew his wife, became intimate with his wife. And we start to see this construction of relationships, right? But he's a broken image bearer, like all of us pre-Christ. See, this is the theological foundation. I want you to consider, and this is an honest look, um, we're not all Cain and Abel's here. We, we haven't been uh, murdered, obviously. Um, but taking responsibility for the sin in your life, who has hurt you and how has it impacted you? For example, Cain, how do you think his family is going to respond to God? They're going to know God very differently than they might have had he not murdered his brother. They might have seen a clearer image of who God was. Now, when I talk about hurt, yes, I'm talking about there could be emotional abuse, there could be physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, but there can also be the loss of a parent at a young age. That hurts you. Significantly. Um, Maybe it's somebody that at every single step they try to undermine you. Maybe, maybe yeah, they're in their, your acquaintance circle, they're a coworker, but at every single step they are just trying to undermine you over and over and over again. How, I, I want you to ask yourself, how does that impact you? Like, uh, uh, I know I'm talking a lot. We started late. Um, <laughs> that's my excuse. Um, in my personal life, I find that when people deeply hurt me, 
I get up here a lot. And I think and I process and I wonder what I did wrong or, or this or that. Can you relate to that? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Like when somebody presents a broken image of God to you, what you're trying to do, what I'm trying to do is reconcile restoration in my head. Why is this so? Why is this trauma so? Why does this impact me so much? And that's another way of saying is, how can this be restored? How can I feel whole again? Can you relate to that? Well, we're going to be participating in the Eucharist today, the Holy Communion. Um, I hate to leave it as like a cliffhanger. I want to say that Jesus does restore us. Jesus does renew us. Jesus does bring hope to us. But I think the first thing that we have to do is to actually name what are the things that are impacting our relationship with God. Like I've talked to you for weeks about how do we grow in our relationship with God. But there are going to be impediments to that. Why? Because sin is lurking. People are going to hurt us. So how do we move forward in growing in our relationship with God in recognition of the trauma that we've walked in and will walk in? So next week, I'm going to talk about what that will look like. Like, what does Jesus actually do in terms of restoring image? Some of you have already said it. Some of you have already experienced it. Um, but one of the things that we can look to is the Eucharist. Um, I talked last week about Judas being a broken image bearer before Jesus. Conversely, Jesus was a perfect image bearer to Judas. And so when we look to the table, when we look to the, the body of Christ that was broken and the blood that was shed, that's something that we're invited into even if we don't understand it. Like, how many of us understand our trauma? I mean, really understand it. Even if we did all the generational history of why certain things happened and why this person did this, will it still make sense? Probably not. But restoration doesn't have to make sense, and this, Jesus offers it freely. He says, I restore you. I, I bring this. My body was broken and my blood was shed for your restoration. So this morning, as we look to his body and blood, the bread and the wine, I want you to consider what are the places in your life uh, where you feel trauma and where you feel like you need restoration and that this can actually be a humble act of worship where the broken mirror can start being put together again, where we can say, I don't understand how I'm going to work through this. I'm scared of it. I'm fearful of it, whatever. I'm going to have to take steps to push people away out of my life that are unhealthy, whatever may be going on in your mind right now. And just start with worship, because that's what this is. It's worship. It's to say, I, I, I take on your restored image. So let me pray for us as we prepare our hearts. Um, God, uh, I thank you that you are doing a mighty work in us. I feel like there is so much more that could be said I think that when we know sin, we know our interior selves and how our sin impacts us and the consequences. But it's really hard to talk about this trajectory in Scripture about how sin of other people impacts us. 
How, because we know it, we've experienced, we feel it, but a lot of times we don't know what to do with it. And then you come in the midst of all the power structures and the relational structures and you say, um, let me show you what it looks like to be reoriented around my kingdom, to be reoriented around a renewed image. This body that was broken for us and this blood that was shed for us is so that way we can be made whole, that we can be made clear reflections of you again. Um, I know, God, that our trauma impedes us from seeing that picture. So, Lord, I pray for those of us this morning that are just having a difficult time seeing what that looks like in our lives, what it means to be a restored image bearer. Um, Maybe it's the shame that we carry. Maybe it's the hurt. Maybe it's the things that we push down. Maybe it's the anger that we carry or the bitterness. But, God, I don't want for us to carry that anymore, and I know that you don't either. So whatever we're carrying as we come up to the table to partake in your body and blood and just your real presence, I pray that we can just leave it behind and that we could start this renewal process with you. Give us the strength to do that. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, Before I say some announcements, when I was praying um, during communion, um, there were there were some tangible questions that came thanks to mind, um, and I I wanted to put those because I know it'll be too fast for you to write down, but maybe these are questions that you could just take a picture of. I my recommendation I I set a a basic theological foundation of what I talked about today, um, and next week I'm going to talk about how that sin really impacts us, what it does to us, and how God reveals and restores that. But I think one of the things that might be helpful is for you to spend some time this week and ask these questions if you're dealing with just an impeded relationship with God. So how are you hurting? Why are you hurting? Who hurt you? How does that impact your relationships? And how does that impact the way you see and receive God? Um, I just find that a lot of times when I'm processing my relationship with God, these are important questions. These are like the triage, right? Like, how, how am I doing in my interior? So maybe that will be helpful for you um, to do that because I feel like by looking at that, uh, maybe next week we'll have some greater depth for you.